Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Miseducation of Cultural Food podcast with Food Jonesy and Friends. I am your host, Charmaine Jones, registered dietitian and owner of Food Jonesy. I have my two good friends who are also registered dietitians to help me discuss important issues surfacing the dietetic profession. Let me introduce you to my good friends who provide their professional and personal experiences in the dietetic field. First, we have Dr. Tia Jeffrey. Dr. Jeffrey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Hi, sure. My name is Dr. Tia Jeffrey. I am the assistant professor and nutrition dietetics program at the University of the District of Columbia. And my research and practice areas of interest are the racial ethnic health disparities of food, food security and chronic diseases, uh, heritage-based nutrition education using storytelling and uh, prevention of treatment of athletic injuries. Okay. And next, we have Dr. Sapna Bethesia. Dr. Bethesia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself too? Hello. Hi, my name is Dr. Sapna Bathaja, and I am a registered dietitian and assistant professor at George Mason University. And my areas of interest in research are technology and social media in relation to overweight and obesity. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you both, Tia and Sapna. We are now continuing part two of our conversation with Teresa Turner on exploring racism and the dietary guidelines. In this segment, we discuss the global dietary guidelines and the social political framework of the melting pot versus salad bowl of cultural assimilation in the context of food and health. So in the research study published by the American Society for Nutrition around 2019, so pretty recent, Anna Henworth and her co-authors reviewed dietary guidelines of countries all over around the world and found some high consistency across the board when it came to recommendations for fruit and vegetable intake, some moderate consistency with the starchy staples, and but less consistency with recommendations for dairy and animal versus plant proteins. So for instance, in most European countries, the US and Canada, it include dairy as a separate food group. And there are some Asian and African countries that actually don't include dairy as a sub- separate food group as one of many examples. So, so what's your take on that? I mean, are these guidelines influenced by more than just science? I think sometimes the dietary guidelines, and I don't know, I'm just thinking, it can be sometimes people integrate their personal or their, the, their lifestyle into the dietary guidelines. Like, if I eat this way, and that's where a lot of, I think this come from, if I eat this way, and this is what's considered healthy. And I'm, if, if I'm sitting on the dietary guideline board, I'm going to say this could possibly be a right way for America can America way of eating. If that makes sense. I think a lot of times people with science, they add their personal way of doing things and, and they kind of like integrate that and include that into um, science. If you understand what I'm saying, like, so for an example, 
I'm giving, uh, um, I'm doing nutrition counseling and I am giving science facts, but I'm also adding in what I believe could be true and could be healthy. I want you to follow this way of eating because I think it, because it works for me, it should work for you too. So I think the dietary guidelines is based on science, but it can also be based on personal habits as well. Yeah, I, I, I think that just as Tia mentioned out, it, it, it mentioned that it's different from every nation, right? And what we know in America is that most of the research is based on a white nuclear family. And that's where the recommendations come from. But just like Charmaine said, it should really be taken into account what is the reality and how are people eating and why are people eating? Just like we've said so many times, there are so many things that influence why people choose the foods that they do. So it should have this more global aspect, right? Uh, in fact, if you think about it, um, with different cultures, most of us, especially now during the pandemic, a lot of people are eating in groups as families, right? And our guidelines really only focus on the individual. So there are other things that can be done to make it more culturally appropriate and again, more realistic to, to the average American. For example, um, a lot of individuals have never even heard or had things like asparagus or broccoli. So creating a model that includes more culturally diverse foods that might be more relevant to black Americans, like collard greens, like okra, things like that. Those are still great vegetables where you can get a lot of nutrition, right? right. So it doesn't have to be things like these. So, okay. So, and that's, and that's the point I'm trying to make. Like, is it, the dietary guidelines have a little, a little bit of personal lifestyle, like someone's personal belief in integrated in that science. Is it really based on culture or is it based on, okay, I'm black and I like collard greens. So I'm thinking every black person should eat collard greens. That's like, because just because I'm black doesn't mean I eat collard greens, right? It's just like, because I'm sitting on a U.S. dietary guideline, if I'm, you know, bored, they already assume that I speak for all Black people, right? Because mm. I am Black. And we, and I, just because I like collard greens, then hey, all Black people might like collard greens. But that's just a personal, that's something that I personally like. So is it really based on, like, culture as a, uh, as a whole or... Are some of these professionals bringing in their own taste or own personal lifestyle into the dietary guidelines? Well, one thing I will say, um, and, and to answer Tia's question directly, she said, what's your take on that? I think it has to be, they should be influenced by more than science. They must be influenced by something that's human because the purpose of them is to serve humans. And if humans don't take it in, if it's just read like science and delivered like science and delivered from only science and not how people relate to the world and to their community and to their selves, then it won't be of use. It won't be of service. And it just churns out as a to-do list, as a checkoff item. Right. But I don't, especially if you know that people don't 
follow them already. What I will say to speak to, especially the dairy thing, I believe it's, it, especially if that's, if it's your culture, that, that animal-based protein is not like a focus, then you likely would not include it in the guidelines for the people in your country. I believe that, I mean, our dairy, we have a dairy group because we, we really use a lot of milk-based protein um, in this lactose-based, you know, protein. But I will say one thing that is, is, has always concerned me, and it's crazy that you can think about something, I shouldn't say crazy, it's strange, perplexed, perplexing that you can think about something years and years ago and the people who are charged with doing it and completing it, it never you know, enters their mind. I have had an issue with the dairy group being called the dairy group for at least a decade. <laughs> like it really needs to be called the calcium group or something, some variation. Dairy is out these days. Dairy has been leaving for a while. Veganism, veganism specifically, not necessarily just vegetarianism, but specifically people are moving away from animal-based process, um, animal-based, excuse me, products on a very large scale. And this has been happening for a while. This is not new. They have five years to keep up with this. I, I don't see how they're still, and I know they have, they, you know, they've been adding plant-based information, but it, it really needs to be a focus on the group because if you're telling people this is a guide to follow and I don't deal with dairy at all, and I see that you're telling me that there are five groups and one of them is dairy. And so I need to get things from all five groups and I don't eat dairy. You know what that means? I'm just not going to get anything because I don't know where else I'm supposed to find the find it from you told me i need dairy and i don't eat dairy so now what it really right. leaves right. way too many yeah. out, people out in the cold and i think that's an issue as well cold and i think that's yeah. politics when it comes to dairy being on the dietary guidelines that's just money and politics and influence mm -hmm. so yeah it is interesting thing to your take on that oh. but oh yeah and i was like uh i hope that Dairy Council doesn't crucify me for what I'm about to say right now. Because Harvard did a study recently where they extensive, comprehensively uh, evaluated the necessity of dairy in, in a diet. And they found that it was not necessary in terms of my life is in danger if I don't include dairy in my diet. Now, yes, it's a rich source of calcium. Yes, there's uh, studies out there about the benefits of whey protein and all of that. But on the other side, um, I think, I, I, well, I would say what my vision is, but I wish that it was uh, dairy. I'm not anti-dairy or anything like that, even though I am mostly plant-based, but I think that it would be more inclusive it if it was included as one of uh, calcium rich sorts of protein in the protein group, as opposed to having its own separate food group, so to speak. Yeah, but the dietary guidelines, you guys, are built on um, the majority of population. The majority is what? Europeans, right? European. So that's part of their culture is dairy. And majority of their money and influence is coming from dairy. So I don't agree with it being on the dietary guidelines, but it's deeper than social, um, the social aspect of it. It's more influenced with, like I said, politics, influence, you know, getting, advocating. Um, the dairy, the dairy 
group is strong. They almost like the, to me, I look at them as like the gun group, like the gun advocacy group. They, when they go on the hill, they advocate and they have a very strong influence in, um, in policy making. The dietary guideline at the end of the day can't please everyone. It can't please all culture. It's just, it's just a, like you said, a guide. It's just a guide to say, hey, if you do eat this, if you do want to eat something from this food group, this is what we recommend. You know, if you do want this, this is what we recommend. It's just a, a guide. It's not set in stone. You can always take that guide and make it your own and, and still meet your nutritional needs. Because I feel like that's what I do in my counseling session. I wow. follow the guide as nutrition guide, but I also make it a cultural appropriate for that individual that I, I think. Okay, go you. ahead, go ahead. Because I think I'm like, jump in to, to, to jump in. Because right, I so appreciate that perspective, Charmaine. I really do hear what you're saying. But if you can see that the tide is turning in America in terms of who the majority is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, minorities are going to be the majority, okay? So we need to speak to those. And the guide, just like you said, you can make it your own. But Charmaine, you are the informed consumer, okay? So you know how to do that. Many people don't know how to do that. So if you don't know then it's easy not to do it, right? And just right. to leave it alone. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be individualized, but it does need to be inclusive, I think. And it needs to I include mm -hmm. language that is culturally sensitive, okay? So it doesn't necessarily have to touch upon everything, but just including some words that say, you know, um, you know, culturally appropriate or uh, mentioning certain groups and things like that so that it makes it easier for folks understanding how to make it their own. Yes, I agree. Which, uh, to piggyback on that, I, I do think that they use, uh, they use the language like of, you know, include a variety, uh, adjust it to your own culture and everything. But I think in addition to that, it's good to point people to where those resources are. Like, um, okay, where can I go find like a vegetarian or vegan based food guide? Where can I find a black heritage or Latino heritage food guide? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are not pointed to the fact that, okay, there's a oldwayspt.org website that has uh, the food guides of the different culture. And there's the, I believe a food and nutrition resource center uh, but the USDA that gives a, a list of those things. But the problem is that most of uh, mainstream are not um, pointed to those resources. They, they are, some of them are around and, but people don't know where to find them. This um, concludes the first um, half of the podcast. And now it's time for our food interlude. Podcast episode five. In this interlude to each their own plate, 
This interlude focuses on individualizing nutrition and understanding that culture, life experience, and social influences all play a part in the way people eat. In this episode, What to Choose, Becky, Shamari, and Mina are back as a group of colleagues. This time, the three are at a restaurant for a Saturday brunch. I'm so glad we made this brunch happen, guys. Even though our schedules are a bit packed, this is a great way to spend a Saturday afternoon. Me too. I haven't been out to eat in so long, and this restaurant is the perfect place for brunch. I cannot wait to eat. There are so many options on this menu. I don't know what to choose. Let's all order the same thing so we can save money on the meal. Good idea. What should we start off with? How about the shrimp and calamari? Isn't that octopus? I don't eat that kind of seafood. The thought of eating an octopus doesn't sit right with me. Girl, my stomach is churning at the thought of that. How about we start with the savory eggplant over rice? That's a hard pass for me, girls. Eggplant, uh, uh. Gives me gas. Don't worry about it. We can skip this one too, Mina. What would you want instead? Pancakes with fruit and maple syrup sound heavenly right now. Mm. I'm not really in the mood for breakfast foods at the moment. And it feels like we're not going to all agree on the same dish. So let's do rock, paper, scissors. And whoever wins picks what we eat. Okay? Ready? Rock, paper, scissors. Or... We can all pick our own meal instead. Becky, you can have the shrimp calamari. That's what you want. I can have the savory eggplant. And Mina can get the pancakes she's been craving for. That's a solid yes for me. Same here. Now that we all can eat what we want on our own terms, you know, I don't know what we would have done if... We did not, if we had to split the bill, it just played itself out. Um, I don't know about all that. Becky's shrimp and calamari is the most expensive thing on this menu. Girl, she better buy us some complimentary mimosas. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <I do. laughs> so, the last question of this podcast has been widely used in politics. It's a framework of the melting pot versus the salad bowl. So in the socio-political context, the melting pot framework suggests that individuals of various ethnic backgrounds in the region assimilate into the dominant culture, whereas the salad bowl view encourages individuals to maintain their sense of identity and integrate the elements of who we all are into a symbolic salad bowl. So considering that, which of these frameworks are more aligned with the status of the United States in terms of our diet culture? I think definitely because of education, we're moving towards the salad bowl. Definitely moving in the right direction. I even use the term melting pot in the past, like because that's what what I hear, that's the colloquial term. And so it's like, you, you think it's a positive thing. Melting pot to me just meant 
everybody was included. It didn't dawn on me that it meant everybody assimilated. And that's the part that's harmful. Erasing, thinking that you have to, to, to be here, to be part of this society, to be respected and treated well, or to get along, that you must assimilate and that you can't be yourself and be who you're meant to be different. Um, so I definitely think right now, we're, def we're still in the melting pot phase, but people are really learning and growing and being more open and working on cultural humility that's leading us towards and in the right direction of the salad bowl. That's what I think. And I'm really excited about that. And I want to see the differences. And I think it's worth the effort which is in, in tying it back into the dietary guidelines. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but um, to, to add other cultures, to add other examples, this happened to mention about, you know, doing different things. And even as Charmaine mentioned about um, what people are used to in their culture, giving people more options, more things to see in case they don't fit into whatever they can, they can choose, they can look at the different options. And I know what people are thinking, oh, it just takes so much. It already is so much time and so much energy is every five years. Guess what? Lives are at stake. That's going to always be my go-to. That's going to always be my answer. How much time is too much time to make sure Americans are healthy? How much, uh, it's, it takes too much time. It takes too much effort. I, I don't buy it. I, I totally agree with you, Teresa. And when you, just to piggyback off of that, it takes more time on the other end of the health spectrum when somebody else is, when you're sick. When you're sick, it's going to take more time, it's going to take more money, and it's going to take more effort to get back to healthy. So you might as well invest it in primary prevention, right? So I agree with you. And I also agree with you with that uh, symbolic salad bowl. I think that's where we are evolving and changing to. Like you said, the colloquial term was the melting pot, but I think we are progressing to that salad bowl so that we can really address those different cultures and ethnicities in America. Yeah, that way everybody is represented as opposed to this cookie cutter model. And um, in relation to the dietary guidelines, you know, if you look at the guidelines over the years, they, like we said before, they've been pretty predictable. They really haven't changed that much. So our recommendations, our guidelines have to come along with our salad bowl. <laughs> they have to, they have to change. And give credit where credit is due. There's quite a bit of food appropriations mm -hmm. out there. So I think that, and it's, it's, it's important to note those things because when another culture take something from a different culture. And because that dominant culture is the more accepted culture, if they appropriate something, like I just say, for example, somebody who's appropriating um, hair braiding and, you know, it, it's degraded by, you know, for with black people coming to the workplace looking as having their roots represented in some of their styles and stuff. But if the Caucasian does it and it's, um, monetized and all that. So that can happen with food too. So it's, I think, you know, it's important that we know who we are in terms of how rich our cultures are and how rich our heritage is and that, you know, our stuff has that level of value um, to be monetized just as much as uh, theirs, our, our dominant white culture is. And Tia made a good point about that as far as um, appropriation. When these extra supplements, when these extra pages, 
And, and I don't care how long the dietary guidelines have to get for it to serve all Americans because that's its job is to serve all Americans and not just some. So at the point where we get to where we're adding what needs to be added, it cannot be left with people who don't have knowledge or education or experience with the topic. You can't leave it up to the same old status quo. This means you have to change the makeup of the people putting it together. That means you have to bring in additional cultural experts to make these determinations. The foods that are that are in the different options have to truly be in the options. It can't be what the majority thinks belongs in those options. It can't just be what we see on TV um, as, you know, or what we learn about through, un, you know, history or misrepresented history, what a culture eats mm. when they're in that culture. It needs to be somebody from that region working on that food, period, because that's going to be a, that's going to be a whole nother show trying to give mm -hmm. this to, to one person in an office up the hall as if they would know. How would they know? Right. Thank you so much, Teresa, for joining us on our podcast. It was a pleasure having you on our show. And to all our audience, we invite you to come back and listen to our podcast as we discuss the misrepresentation of cultural foods, educating communities of color on adopting healthier eating behaviors, and more in the dietetics profession. Go to the Food Jonesy website at foodjonesy.com to listen to past recordings, learn about our upcoming episode, and fill out the survey so we can cover topics that you want to hear. See you next time.